Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. And we have to step away from treating weight as a personal responsibility because it, that kind of rhetoric puts a lot of shame on the individual, especially the fact that it's just simply incorrect. So even if it was something that was completely in control, it still would be stigmatizing and harmful to be doing. But it's even more ridiculous to be doing it when weight often isn't in somebody's control. Hello, and welcome to The Body Protest. In this podcast, we combine storytelling with science to better understand our relationship with our bodies. I'm Nadia Craddock, and I'm a body image researcher. And I'm Honey Ross, and I'm a writer. This podcast is brought to you by The Pink Protest. Three, two, one. Hi, hey, body, body protesters. protesters. <laughs> I said hey as well. I mean, I deviated. <laughs> oh dear. Hi, Honey, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, you know? I, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling alive. I'm feeling the summertime. I'm young, I'm in love, I'm thriving. <laughs> what can I say? How are you? <laughs> All the better for seeing you. God, feelings mutual. So we have a jam-packed episode for you, so we're going to jump right in. But before we start, a very quick thank you for all the love on the first two episodes of the series. We're so glad that you're enjoying it as much as we've enjoyed making them. It means so much to us because we have such a good time making this show. Today we speak with Dr. Joshua Woolrich, an NHS surgeon, and we get really into it. So we speak about weight stigma, health at every size, Josh's own complicated relationship with his body and food growing up. And in honor of his new book, Food is Not Medicine, we got Josh to tell us how it is with some popular fad diets. I think he's the first straight man uh, we've ever had on our show. So that's a huge milestone for the body protest. <laughs> We've never had a straight man on before. So it's very uh, intriguing. And also, I think he's the first person we've ever had on who didn't have a long list of self-care. So it, that was also very interesting. We're learning something new every day on the job. But it was great to chat. And after the conversation, uh, we have an amazing knowledge noodle on food insecurity and disordered eating from the mind of Dr. Nadia Craddock. We also signpost some fat activists, writers and scholars that you should know. Okay, no time to leave. Let's hear from Josh. Hello, my name is uh, Dr. Joshua Walrich, but that's my full title and only my mother calls me that. She doesn't call me that. Um, I'm a, uh, a surgical doctor within the NHS um, on a year out to do a, a master's degree in nutrition and public health. And I have a larger than I ever expected social media presence talking mainly about weight stigma and what I coin as nutribollocks. So people using spurious nutrition info to justify diets and all mm. sorts of all sorts of nonsense, which we may or may not get into. Uh, after originally setting up my social media profile as a weight loss account. Yay! So, uh, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. And I make more enemies than friends, but hopefully I am doing more good than harm. Thank you so much for joining us, Josh. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, right. We like to kind of go in with this question and, you know, feel free to take it as deep as you like. But would you be happy telling me a bit about what your relationship with your body was like growing up? Mm, yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Um, it was complicated. 
as is probably the answer to pretty much anyone that ever has, if they're honest or slash if they have insight into what their relationship with their body and plus or minus food, because I think the two are nicely related, is I think complicated is always the answer. And the the, the, the sooner we get to realizing it's complicated, I think the better. Um, but for me, the reason why is mainly, I think, because of the fact that I grew up in a house with an alcoholic father. And that impacted my relationship with food first. From someone who is white middle class and went to private school, um, you wouldn't necessarily expect that I had elements of food insecurity as a kid, but I did because uh, my dad would get drunk and not realize he'd fed us. So he thought he had sent us to bed. And as a 12 year old kid, you can't, you can't argue against that. It doesn't work. So I would have to wait till my mum got home and then tell her we hadn't eaten and then we'd get food late. So I decided I wasn't having any of that. And I would um, have a stash of food in my room to feel in control about the situation and not not have it all left up to chance because I couldn't predict when or when or how that would what days that would happen on, for example. Um, the only way of doing that as a 12 year old was to steal because I didn't have a job. Um, and so uh, I uh, gained the habit of stealing tubs of Pringles from the local corner shop on the way home from school and I would keep them in my room. And I would eat them, uh, I would eat a whole tub uh, if I was sent to, to my room to bed without food. And then I would have dinner as well when my mom got mm -hmm. home. Um, and for a 13, 12, 13 year old kid, that wasn't necessarily the most sensible option or healthy option, but it that wasn't on my mind. My mind was control and um, uh, trying to plaster over the fear and the, I don't know, the kind of sadness and anxiety of the situation because it's not fun, obviously, for someone of that age, for anyone. Yeah, it sounds like you were kind of seeking comfort, control and comfort. Yeah. Interestingly, because it became a routine, it also then became something I would do even if I did get dinner. Yeah. Because of that, plus other things, because weight is complicated. I grew up a, a larger kid than the average at my school. And so I got bullied for the vast majority of my school life for being fat. That unsurprisingly didn't make me magically lose weight. Mm. Um, and so I went through medical school fat, starting to believe all of these things that I'd heard about myself and who I must be as a person because I was fat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So I started internalizing all of the weight stigma I'd encountered, including thoughts that uh, I must be lazy, I must be this, I must be that. And ironically, if you think you're lazy, you kind of become more lazy. It's a weird one, that one. Um, but you kind of lose the motivation to do something if you're like, well, people are calling me lazy anyway, so I might as well be lazy. It's, it's weird. It's a strange double-edged sword. Mm. But uh, yeah, left medical school believing I couldn't be a good doctor because I was fat and went through very disordered methods of losing weight um, so that I could be a better doctor, which is very, very problematic. All stemming from experiences as a child of kind of not having security around food and mm. growing up larger and being bullied and believing I wouldn't be loved if I was fat and all this kind of stuff. And it it merged into believing I couldn't be good at my job if I was fat. So does that answer the question? <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. That can't have been easy to share. And I, we really appreciate that honesty. I mean, I, it would be nice to be like, yes, I'm really bold with this stuff. But actually, I... I, I've come to a point and I'm really glad I am at, at a point mm. now where I can talk about this stuff. I wasn't for a long while, yeah. but I also didn't understand it. And so it's very hard to talk about something you don't understand because you don't know that that's what you should be saying to answer a certain question. So yeah. I, it's been a long road of working out my relationship with my father and things. And actually, intriguingly, after working through some of that stuff through many different ways, um, the stuff around food became more apparent and it's been, it's been interesting. Um, learning about that kind of stuff but really insightful as well it sounds like you've been on a real journey with with everything in terms of your body where you've been where you're at now you do talk a bit about how you were a weight loss account mm. briefly well for a while actually <laughs> how, <laughs> how long? uh it would so i would have started by account on instagram um january because of course january uh classic new year I, new me exactly i would have started it january 2016 probably right. So five years. Um, and the first like two or three years was just a weight loss account. But yeah, it started off as that because I, I decided that social media was the best way of keeping me accountable by leveraging shame, because of course it is. Yes, shame always um, helps motivate, apparently. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> that's, that's what I was told too. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I decided that I would just post everything I ate. And that way, if I post a picture of a biscuit, my friends would tell me off for posting a picture of a biscuit slash eating a biscuit, and I would not eat any more biscuits. It wasn't good or healthy, but ironically it worked because I just didn't yeah. eat any biscuits because I was too concerned about 
having to tell people which was hard yeah. like it's not don't copy no, that it's not i good, really understand and empathize that i I think I'd mentioned this on the podcast before, but I did keto for three years, you know, which I'm not proud of. And I, you know, I mean, I'm not ashamed of it, but it's, it's so strange that you do, especially you fall into that trap on Instagram of you do post those things. And there is a thrill of being held accountable by your peers and it's very toxic. Will you, mm. if you don't mind sharing, was there a kind of come to Jesus moment where you were like, maybe this isn't the answer. Maybe weight loss hasn't been the thing for me. It was a it was a gradual thing because there was a lot to unpack about what I'd been taught and what I believed about myself and and all sorts of things. Um, but there definitely was a turning point, um, which I blame entirely on Laura Thomas um, <laughs> for what I perceived at the time for having a go at Halo Top um, ice cream soon after it soon after it arrived in the UK from from the magical land of the US and low calorie ice creams, which. <laughs> I, at the time, being very much a dieting, weight loss, counting calories, was like, this is incredible. <laughs> I was like, this is like, I'm going to, why is it five pounds a tub? This sucks. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, I remember her posting something about, and it was actually really nuanced. And I think that was probably what drew me in about why it wasn't necessarily all good and why there are definitely conversations to be had around the encouragement of binging, for example, because it directly encourages you to eat the entire tub in one go. Yeah. But it's okay because you're eating the low calorie version rather than saying, well, why are we doing that in the first place? Yeah. Um, and, and all sorts of other things that she was talking about. And I remember messaging her and going, you're wrong. And uh, she, I don't know why I did that either, but um, she messaged me back and was nice. And then I was like, uh, well, I, can I come and meet you then? Because I want to hear what you have to say. I love that it was all kind of Laura Thomas and Halo Top ice cream that yeah. gave you this <laughs> light, this epiphany. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, it was then a gradual step from then on. Yeah. Obviously, it wasn't an overnight thing. Um, no, of course. And I, and I left after an afternoon talking to her, which I never paid her for. I feel like I just took up all of her, all of her client time. So uh, yeah, I, I left that afternoon with uh, with her sending me an email with a whole bunch of different papers to read and recommending that I check out Evelyn Triboli and and mm -hmm. the Intuitive Eating book and uh, also to check out Health Every Size and just to to kind of explore it because from what she said and I said to her at the time I think I remember saying well that makes sense but what if this and I was doing the very standard stuff yeah. the very like yes but what about the extremes yes but what about this yeah but mm. does it actually contradict this but what happens if it is if you are unhealthy and all this kind of natural not necessarily correct but predictable responses um mm. she was very polite to me <laughs> um, and I started exploring some of it and I realized that if I had any sort of integrity, and yes, that is a dig at some people who refuse to look at it after they hear about this stuff, because it is an mm. integrity issue. Mm -hmm. If there is a risk that I'm doing harm to my patients, I need to look at it properly. It doesn't matter whether that is a hard thing for me to do or not. That is a responsibility as a healthcare professional. Um, and I think that's a responsibility as a human being as well. If you are, you know, if you are causing harm to others and somebody points out that that might be happening the the default position is not it or should not be no it's not i refuse to even listen to you they might be wrong that's fine <laughs> like you're not always doing harm if someone's telling you you are because some people are wrong but to just point blank refuse to listen and to to get your guard up um it's not about you at that point it's not about you anymore um it's about the people that are coming to harm from what you're doing and so I couldn't allow myself to ignore it without fully investigating it. And I didn't think I'd agree. Let's be clear. I thought <laughs> I'd look at this stuff. I thought I'd look at health every size and be like, well, that's very nice. Um, I agree that we need to address stigma, but that's as far as I'm going to go. Wow. So you, there was a point, there was a part of you that wanted not to believe this. Well, of course, because if I did, <laughs> if I did believe it, it meant that I had, I needed to, a apologize and and to to people that I had harmed and I wasn't mm. going to be able to do that because I don't have a record of every patient I've ever seen and I knew that there was there were ways that I conducted myself in life and in my job that would have made me ashamed of what I'd done and wow. so of course I didn't want to admit that I might have been wrong nobody does um, <laughs> yeah 
it became a gradual like six month change probably it took about six months to uh, kind of and documenting my my changing thought process through instagram as well which was interesting and and the vast majority of people stayed as i as i continued the last thing to change was my instagram name um because okay. i i refused no i refuse to tell you what it was will you share it no it was come terrible. on Nadia. gone gone to it. unfattening yeah that yeah right? brilliant Ooh, yeah. because <laughs> i was i was unfattening it was oh, very Josh. Clever. it was very clever i just want to give that boy a hug <laughs> <laughs> like i just i'm so sorry <laughs> but it you're here fun. now <laughs> I remember refusing to change it for a long while because it because mm-hmm. I liked the name and I thought it was clever and I was like it's attracting the kind of people I now want to speak to and so I don't need to change it it's blah blah blah, blah. Mm. I, I had to go with myself so Josh you've mentioned health at every size a couple of times there I wonder for people who are unfamiliar with the term if you could explain what it is and then maybe continue by sharing a little bit on how you navigate that approach from a medical standpoint mm haze or health at every size it's essentially a challenge to practice healthcare in a different way healthcare i would probably argue globally is is practiced uh, with a very he- uh, with a very weight centric approach meaning that the weight is commonly used as the kind of the the determiner or the the the, de- the determining factor as to judge or assess someone's health and it tends to be treated as the be all and end all of somebody's health and something that overweighs anything else that they do or might not be doing. Um, and the, the the main, I believe, the main goal and the main point of Hayes or Health at Every Size is to change that from a weight centric approach to a weight inclusive approach. And that, I think that's the main point that people don't understand. A lot of people think if I, if I say that I work via a Health at Every Size way, they go, well, that means you don't believe weight can have any impact on health. I'm like, no, that's that's not the point because that's not true mm-hmm. um, because weight can have an impact on health. The vast majority of people aren't saying that it can't have an impact on health. We're saying that there's much more to that conversation. And so it's not about denying the impact of fat tissue possibly working as an endocrine organ, all that kind of stuff. It's not denying any of that. It's saying there is a lot more here that we need to talk about. We need to talk about the impact of weight stigma. We need to talk about the fact that it's never included in research in regards to, is it actually an independent risk factor when we're comparing body size and disease risk? We need to talk about the fact that when we start putting a focus on weight, we often ignore actual health promoting behaviors. And we know that weight loss is not a health promoting behavior. It's not a behavior, Mm -hmm. Um, full stop. It's an outcome that may or may not occur. Um, so there's a lot there and there's a lot to discuss in regards to um, sustainability of weight loss because of the fact of deliberate weight loss, because of the fact that it is so complex as to the reasons why. So, for example, and I like using this as an example because it, it it's very hard to disagree. As a kid myself, if you'd have put me on a diet at the doctors at the age of 13 because I was suddenly larger than my peers... Would the problems or the issues that I was experiencing as a kid have changed? No, none whatsoever. Nothing would have changed about the food insecurity. Nothing would have changed about my relationship with my father. Nothing would have changed about how I viewed myself as a person based on my size at that point. None of that would have changed. All that would have happened is you would have restricted my food and made me more insecure about what was going on. And that's the problem. That's that's the, the issue that isn't discussed is that or it's one of the issues anyway is that weight loss and weight gain and the weight that people live at is incredibly complex and so whether or not it's having an impact on health if we refuse to acknowledge any of that we're doing patients a disservice and we are stigmatizing because we're treating weight as a personal responsibility and we have to step away from treating weight as a personal responsibility because it puts that kind of rhetoric puts a lot of shame on the individual especially the fact that it's just simply incorrect. So even if it was something that was completely in control, it still would be stigmatizing and harmful to be doing. But it's even more ridiculous to be doing it when weight often isn't in somebody's control. Um, That might be a challenging opinion for people to to hear and believe. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I would advise you to delve into that. The the treatment of body size as a personal responsibility, I think personally is is at the heart of the vast majority of the attitudes that we have towards patients, towards other people, other human beings. I think that if we could address that, a lot of good would be done and a lot would change. We, we've done it when it comes, well, we've half done it when it comes to poverty. Mm. You know, go back, I, I don't know how long you can probably correct me, but I, let's let's say 20 years um, and the vast majority of people would be of the, the vast majority of people not in poverty would be of the opinion that poverty is simply people not working hard enough, not saving enough. They just need to drag themselves out of poverty. Um, very American dream-esque. I just think about the fact that had I heard you say that when I was a teenager who felt like a failure because I could not lose weight because it was not something that was in my control, I mean, it would have changed everything. And it's so lovely to hear you say that. It, I don't know, I think it's so important that these conversations are being had. Yeah, and especially you being a doctor, being a surgeon from that point of view, I think that has so much more power and weight to it for the want of a better word. And I, I guess relatedly, and you mentioned earlier that the medical profession has this very weight-centric approach traditionally. And I'm curious how we move healthcare professionals, both the medical field and public health, away from this myopic focus on weight and BMI, and how do we make healthcare more inclusive? I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, if you know, please tell me. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I, there are mm -hmm. definitely things I think are helping. And I think being cognizant of, of what weight stigma is, is, is a really good start because I was entirely ignorant of it. Even if you do still think that weight is a personal responsibility, if you start to understand how stigmatizing expressing that attitude to a patient can be, then even if we got people to pretend or hide, that's one start. It's not great, don't get me wrong, but mm. it's a start. Um, and actually, interestingly, I, I was having a conversation with um, with a, a friend who's a medical student, um, currently a last year medical student at the moment this year. Um, and she was saying that she doesn't remember at all in the last five years being taught about the social determinants of health. And mm. that to me was quite surprising because I don't, I, I've, I'm not that old, but I left medical school about six years ago and I don't remember it, but I thought perhaps I, you know, I started medical school 12 years ago, so I don't know whether or not I remember, whether I remember everything that got discussed. Um, but I thought, well, maybe I was, maybe the social determinants of health were discussed and I just don't remember or whatever. She has no memory of that being discussed either. And so I think that's a huge thing too. I think actually, if it's a course to teach people to become doctors who are, stereotypically seen as kind of the, the center of healthcare, and you're not teaching them about how health is impacted by things completely out of somebody's control, then of course we're going to leave with an attitude of personal responsibility, not just when it comes mm -hmm. to weight, but personal responsibility when it comes to health. And especially if we believe that weight and health are intrinsically linked and are the same, then why would we not think that weight is a personal responsibility? I think those are two things that must be included in the curriculum. I'm just, I'm still surprised that that's something that I had to learn after medical school rather than something right. I was taught from day one. That should be in the first mm. year to me. Yeah, a big part of it, as you say, should be that that education framing. And as you say, talking about weight stigma and all the consequences of weight stigma that we have, yeah. and then social determinants of health, how that impacts people's weight and health separately and together yeah. and combined. And then the other thing I think for me that I think is really useful, especially from the, the science and the, the medic side, is the impact on yo-yo dieting and weight cycling. And we've got the government now saying, oh, everyone should lose five pounds and then you know we'll all be a bit healthier. And I was like, well, what's... What's the backlash to that? What's the repercussion of doing that? If you're doing it in an unsustainable way and then you regain the weight and you you go through this pattern of up, down, up, down, you're experiencing weight stigma, you've got some of these other social determinants of health impacting your your daily life, your the daily stresses. It's looking at all of those things and really being able to be more nuanced in your thinking and being able to critique the research and looking at correlational research and being able to see see, okay, you've got BMI and you've got, some kind of health outcome but what are all the factors and mediating variables that are not included within that 
study, yeah. right? So I think especially for from the medics and the public health professionals, like we're taught how to critique stuff, but I think there's like a blind spot when it comes to weight because we want to believe something that's so simplistic. Oh, yeah. It's com it's confirmational. I mean it's there yeah. I think that's something that has frustrated me over the last week as well. And I was saying to you briefly before we started that mm -hmm. because there have been some discussions in the public eye around weight and health in the last week, people have started coming out of the woodworks with their own, um, not to beat around the bush, their own stigmatizing views on things. Mm -hmm. But what's interested me is that the same people who would call out, uh, let's say, a single keto study for not changing the overall the overall research, the overall body of literature that we have. So for example, let's say we know that, um, that a ketogenic diet is no difference to one that contains carbs when it comes to weight loss. That, that is not, not just let's say, that's just true. Like it doesn't make any difference whether you're eating keto or whether you're eating vegan with lots of carbs. It has no impact on sustainability or reliability or amount of weight loss. So we know that. And if we have a new, a new study that comes out that says that keto is actually better, that doesn't change all of the research we have already straight away, right? It gets incorporated in the research and we look at it with a critical eye, but it doesn't change everything we have. The same people who are very up on that, very hot on all of that kind of stuff and understanding how this research works are now the same people who are taking one single recent study about how exercise doesn't change the impact of uh, BMI or mortality and going, see, we knew you can't be fat and fit. And it's like, hang on, are you forgetting how science works? Are you forgetting <laughs> that this study only looked at three different conditions, one of which barely had any any say in the entire paper? So two conditions. Mm -hmm. That's not the be-all and end-all of someone's health. There are lots of other things. Are you forgetting all of the other research we have that suggests that you can actually remove all mortality risk with, with cardiovascular health and with exercise, et cetera, irrelevant of weight? I mean, because yes, you are. You are ignoring all of that because... Mm -hmm. This study fits your confirmation bias of what you mm. want to believe and what you want to express. But you won't do that, and you'll call other people out about it when they do that about keto, but you're doing the same thing about this. I don't know why I brought I can't remember now why I brought that up, but it but it's that's the stuff I'm that's the stuff I'm seeing. And it, so yeah, even though we 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 understand or people think they understand this kind of research stuff, our confirmation bias of wanting to justify what we do on a daily basis mm -hmm. and the attitudes that we have towards other people that are differently bodied to what we are because it if if it's not a personal responsibility then i'm not as self-righteous as i consider myself to be so amazing that i've that i'm staying fit right i'm just doing so well and i'm mm -hmm. such a blessing to the nhs because i'm doing my part fuck off that's ridiculous <laughs> that confirmation bias encourages them to not have to consider that they might be wrong I feel like you are probably telling a lot of people to fuck off, or at least wanting to. <laughs> <laughs>
she was stigmatized for her size when she went in for a smear and never went back. I get overwhelming support from UK doctors, right? That's easy to lend support to. It's not hard, but it's not just the easy stuff that we need people to be sticking up for their patients for. Um, We need them to be sticking up for their patients when it's difficult and when it means they might have done something wrong. And I don't see enough of that. But it does sound like you're looking for accountability, which sounds very justified. I mean, I, d- I don't see why not. I'm a patient yeah. too. Yeah. Like, you know, if if, uh, if if I go in and I, you know, and I've, I've, I've put weight on over lockdown, for example, if I need to go and see my, my GP or for something that, that is that is coming up and all I get told is, well, you're uh, heavier now than you were a year ago. So you should probably try losing weight because that will improve things. Mm. Why should I, you know, that... <laughs> We need people to be having conversations so that those kind of um, statements are only ever had if they are entirely relevant. Mm. And even when they are entirely, even when they are relevant, they are had with nuance and accountability and a a way of discussing something that is a difficult topic and an understanding of the topic rather than just a blanket statement because it's a tick box on the GP records. Mm. Um, So so yeah, there, of course there should be accountability. This is not something that we can continue to sweep under the rug. I think we've got too far in terms of realizing that we can't continue to do this. And I think enough of the public are starting to realize that when they're when they're stigmatized for their size of the doctors, they don't deserve it because you take it back 10, 20 years and everybody would just say, oh yes, okay, no, you're right, doctor. And people would just accept it because it's normalized and it is the status quo. And now people and patients are starting to realize that actually what is being said is inappropriate. I think the backlash is getting more because it's becoming harder and harder and harder for people to ignore and for people to continue practicing the same way. Do you have any advice for listeners who might be facing weight stigma with their doctors? Yes, but it's perhaps a little bit different to most advice that I see. Um, Go for and the it. reason, <laughs> well, the reason I say that is, and it's difficult, right? Because just to start off, I, I just want to say I don't agree that tone policing is a good thing, mm. um, and by that I mean I don't believe you should have to water down or mince your words when you are subject to discrimination or abuse. I don't think you should have to. Mm. However, I know full well when I was of the opinion that weight was a personal responsibility and that weight and health are intrinsically linked and I should always tell my patients to lose weight if they were over a certain BMI, I know that if I had somebody come in to me, if I had a patient tell me or ask me, well, would you give that same advice to a thin person? I wouldn't have listened. Mm. I would have just gone, sorry, what? Like that's, no, of course not because they're thin. I would have said Mm. something stupid and I wouldn't have understood. And so uh, as as much as that would have been a valid thing to say, logically, um, f- so is so is just turning bound to the doctor and saying, you are being stigmatizing to me because of my weight. And mm. even though that's valid, wh- that doesn't necessarily achieve anything um, because the, the purpose here as much as as much as we want to believe that healthcare is a relationship between patient and doctor and it should be, and it is what we're taught, there is an undeniable level of hierarchy that we cannot get rid of because somebody is coming in at a disadvantage because they are worried about their health and they are coming in for help. So whenever somebody is coming to someone else for help, no matter how you structure the consultation or the conversation or no matter how good a doctor might be at their communication skills, there is always going to be an element of hierarchical nature there that you cannot remove entirely. And so you're coming for help and you don't want to you don't want to have to go and find some other doctor because not everybody has that ability either. The thing I would say is that there, there are two things that I think help. Um, and one is the vast majority of people who, who are subject to weight stigma, stigma don't have a very good relationship with food. That's not necessarily the, the, the reason for their size, because again, as I said, it's very complex, the, the size that someone lives in. But being subject to weight stigma for that many years makes your relationship with food difficult because it makes you question everything you put into your body because you worry about your size all the time and so describing the fact that if a doctor is trying to put you on a diet even if it might have some relevance to your condition talking to them about your relationship with food and saying that i'm concerned that this will be damaging to my mental health because i've dieted for years and years and years and 
right now I would like you to give me some help for my ear infection. Um, I don't want to have a conversation um, as much as I respect you. You don't have to respect them, but it's nice to say. Um, <laughs> as much as I respect you for 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 the job that you do, I'd, please, can we not talk about dieting right now? Because it's not mm. helpful to me. I know that's not always the easiest thing to say, and you don't want to be that mm. polite. But I know that if I was told that by a patient, I'd, I wouldn't have been able to ignore that. Mm. Like, I'd be like, I don't understand what you're saying, but I can't tell you you're wrong because that's not okay and those kind of conversations i think are really i think would really make a big difference a really big impact um and the other thing i would say is just ask why there's no problem asking make make a doctor yeah. tell you why if they're saying well you know you go in with a condition and they say well I, I think you should lose weight it'll help and you say well can i ask why because a lot of the time they don't have a reason and if you ask them why and they brush it off you know that that it's not actually relevant yeah um and they might be wrong in their reasoning afterwards as well that's fine but they might also be right but you've asked why and at least then there's a reason for them to have to justify what they're saying and you can say okay well thank you for explaining can you also tell me something else that will help mm. like that's fine you don't have to necessarily say i'm going to refuse to listen to you but you can just say well can we talk about some other options too because a doctor should always give you more than one thing this is a relationship it's a patient doctor conversation it's not just here is the only option take it or leave it i refuse to tell you anything else that's not how it works josh i know you've got a book coming out food is not medicine i think it's available to pre-order it am is. i right it is from all good Excellent. bookstores i think <laughs> Excellent. So as a bit of a, a teaser for the book, I wondered if we could do a very quick fire round to get your medical opinion on some current diet trends. Mm. Carry okay. on. Go. So, do I have to be um, polite? No. no. Let's go. <laughs> so I'm going to start. <laughs> Opinions on a juice cleanse. You can't cleanse your body. Um, why would you want to do it with juice anyway? Uh, you'll just wreck your teeth. Yeah, stop trying to think you can detox through food. It's not medicine. Can't do it. It's bullshit. Nonsense. Next. Keto. I mean, if you want to give yourself bowel cancer because you refuse to eat any fiber and you also want to increase your risk of cardiovascular disease because no matter how well you do it, you are going to increase the amount of saturated fat you eat in your diet, go for it. If, however, you want to have a good relationship with food and also a nutritious diet, stop cutting carbs. Don't worry, you can't, don't, don't panic if you have done keto in the past because just make sure you eat lots of fiber. Eat lots of fiber and have lo lots of nice super healthy fats in your diet now and you'll be fine oh, yeah. um, it doesn't wreck everything for the rest of your life but why would you do it like once you know those things why why i mean i just like bacon i ate so much bacon at the time <laughs> but well, anyway, well exactly exactly right and it's so easy it's so easy <laughs> it's to so easy because, i know because bacon and butter sound like the perfect things to be having on a keto diet and there's nothing wrong with them in isolation but if that's making up a large percentage of your diet that's a lot mm. of saturated fat and that's not good for you it's just yeah. not there we go. Okay, next, gluten-free. If you have celiac disease, great. Uh, if you have a gluten intolerance, fine. If you have the privilege of working with a dietitian or a nutritionist to figure out whether you actually have a gluten intolerance or whether you've just been avoiding gluten for so long because you thought it was bad for you and now it's difficult to eat gluten, that would be great too. They don't taste as good. Like, why are you buying the gluten-free stuff? I know, if you don't need I mean, it, why are you doing that? And it's more expensive. Oh, yeah. And you're taking it away from people who actually need it. I always think that that may, that gets me riled. Detox teas. Again, same as the cleanse. You can't detox your body through food or drink. And the vast majority of them still contain laxatives. So why are you doing that? Um, appetite suppressant. Yeah. Why? Why? If you're hungry, eat something. And it's not thirst, just to clarify. Um, you know, mm. everyone says, oh, it's so confusing between the two. Where is your source for that? Is it a dieting <laughs> blog? Because yes, it's a dieting blog. There's no good source for that because it's not true. Your body's not stupid. If you were thirsty and you thought you were hungry, we wouldn't be still here. All an appetite suppressant is going to do is, is ruin temporarily your relationship with food mm. um, because it's just going to blunt your hunger and it's disordered. It's not sensible or healthy or good. And you're just going to be hungry again afterwards. So you might as well eat then and eat something that is going to sustain you and feel that hunger rather than pretend it's not there and have an appetite suppressant lollipop or whatever they're selling nowadays okay what about alkaline diets eat more veg that's fine 
It's got nothing to do with its pH, though. It's just so, <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. Um, the best way I can describe how ridiculous this is, is um, when you're severely unwell uh, and, and people get admitted to, to places like ICU because they're so unwell, the, the pH of their blood is usually off whack, usually, usually acidic um, because they're unwell and their body can no longer manage it. Your body can manage it unless you're severely unwell, just to clarify. Mm. Again, if we couldn't, we wouldn't still be here. Now, if an alkaline diet or food or veg or a juice cleanse, which claims to be good because it's alkaline as well, if any of those could fix it, we would be using them in ICU because mm. it'd be much cheaper than the medication we have to use to sort out someone's pH. I think that one pisses me off the most because it's used to, to argue for cancer treatment. Yeah. That, that, one, that one kills people. And so mm. I think that one is yeah. like a juice cleanse you know it damages your relationship with food and probably doesn't make you feel very good an alkaline diet actually kills people because it's sold mm. as a cure for cancer mm. and so yeah that yeah. one that one gets me riled up and i think validly so no i think that's that's important my last one intermittent fasting mm. oh Pri privileged starvation you mean sorry you misspoke right? <laughs> that's what that's what you actually meant to call it um because it is there are lots of people in this world who have a lot of food insecurity and don't have the privilege of choice to refuse to eat. It is something that they struggle with. It is starvation and it is privileged. If you have the ability to refuse to eat food um, and only eat in a certain window of time, um, not, only is it, not only is it ridiculous because it doesn't have any benefit to you um, unless you like eating that way and then that's fine, um, but it, it's just, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's privileged starvation. Um, you can argue with the meal you like, but it, it's, it's mm -hmm. the same thing. Both me and Nadia are like completely in agreement. Not going to argue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no. I more meant the listener. I've, um, <laughs> I've never heard anyone put it, phrase yeah. it like that, privileged starvation. I, I, like I really it. like that. Yeah. It's one of the subheadings in the book, intermittent fasting or privileged mm. starvation. I quite uh -huh. like that nice. subheading. I like that. Very good. We love to end the podcast with this question because we feel like it ties it up nicely. It's a bit cosy. What are <laughs> things you do to look after yourself to make yourself feel better, especially after you've been like going against the grain and fighting the good fight? What do you do for yourself? Uh, I need to be better at doing stuff for myself. Ooh. Let's put it that way. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't really have an instant answer to that. And I probably should. There are a yeah. few things that I that I like doing that I use as a justification to to kind of uh, like switch off, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, so like watching YouTube or, or playing chess on my phone or stuff like that. That, it, it, but it's like passive switching off rather mm. than active switching off. Um, so so yeah, I think I need to get better at doing that because it is stressful. Life is stressful yeah. for everyone, whether or not you're fighting weight stigma on the internet or not. Um, and yeah, we sh we need to have some ways of building resilience. And I think I've relied on my natural resilience, which is unearned for a bit too long, um, because I, I I do have a lot of natural resilience for some reason. Um, and so I've always used that as an excuse not to need to find other mechanisms to yeah. to reset, I guess. Yeah, resilience doesn't last forever. No. And also just because you can yeah. withstand something doesn't mean you should have to. Yeah. Just because you are strong doesn't mean you have to keep on <laughs> weathering that. Yeah. Find those ways to, to fill up the cup. Exactly. Rather than just look the other way whilst the cup is still half full. <laughs> like, it's fine. Yeah. I'm playing chess now. Be okay. <laughs> I'll come back to it later. Maybe it'll have rained. Who knows? <laughs> Josh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. As we sign off, where can we find your work and how can we, Honey and I, and our listeners support you and your work? Social media is the easiest place to find me. I spend too long on that. Mm -hmm. um, but you will, you mo mostly on Instagram, Dr. Joshua Walrich, DR, rather than spell it all out. It's too long otherwise. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. If you're over 40 than <laughs> uh, no i'm teasing and i'm on tiktok woo if oh, you're wow. a child um <laughs> or I, oh, seriously i feel so old on tiktok even though i'm not i'm only 30 it's not that i'm not that old but yeah no but it makes me feel old it's the, they're all so youthful and dancing <laughs> why is everybody dancing exactly. firstly i can't dance <laughs> secondly like there are people there who've never seen bambi i, do, I just don't that's like, stressful i know <laughs> i didn't I know. need to hear that today <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, so I'm all, all of those things. Um, and I and I do have a book coming out, which was mentioned a bit earlier, um, which I would love you to buy. The reason why I want you to read the book is because I am actually really proud of it. It's allowed me to talk about things in much more detail than I have been able to on social media. Um, and one of the frustrating aspects of social media is that it's very hard to get across adequate nuance about topics because you're so limited to what you can say. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy for you to come across in the wrong way when you're trying to describe something because people won't watch everything you say. And if they only hear half of it, they may come away with a different opinion to what you actually mean. Mm. So that's one of the most frustrating aspects of social media to me. And I love the fact that I've mm -hmm. been able to put some of that into a book. Um, so yeah, it's not just about food. The whole first half is about weight and health and people's relationship with food and my backstory and disordered eating and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the second half is is about Nutribollocks and stuff, but there's a clear link between the two. So so go and read my book and then tell me if you liked it. That would be what you can do for me because I, I think it's cool. I feel like we so rarely hear about food insecurity in the context of complicated relationships with food, but it makes so much sense. What does the research say? Okay, well, first of all, you're so right. We don't hear about food insecurity and, and complicated relationships with food very often. But let's define food insecurity first. I love a, love a definition. Food insecurity is something we often call or term a social determinant of health. And specifically, food insecurity is when a household has insufficient access to nutritious food due to low resources. So unsurprisingly, we see greater food insecurity among low income households. But what I thought was really interesting with Josh's example is that it's not limited to low income households. So can we dig into the research a bit more then? Yeah, so as you say, there's not much out there. But very helpfully, there was a review paper published last year led by someone called Dr. Vivian Hazard, which very helpfully, as I said, sums up the current evidence. And I'll pop a link to the paper in the Google Drive. Essentially, bottom line is that there's a clear trend between food insecurity and disordered eating, and perhaps particularly disordered eating in line with bulimic symptoms. So binging and compensatory behavior like vomiting or laxative abuse. Why do you think that is? So, and this is definitely not me, this is taken directly from the review paper, but one of the reasons that they've put forward is that a lot of people living with food insecurity experience, quote, feast or famine cycle where there's either food is abundant or it's not and it's, and it's limited. So it kind of artificially creates a binge restrict cycle, regardless of whether it's a, a dieting thing or not. It's so interesting because it literally is insecurity. Like it's a lack of security when it comes to knowing when your next meal is coming around that in terms of the feast or famine concept. Yeah. And that's the thing, like your body doesn't know what's happening. And then there's this really classic study from, 19, from the 1940s. It's the Minnesota starvation experiment where they were looking at the effects of starvation, essentially. And they had healthy volunteers, so people who were deemed like physically and mentally healthy at, at baseline, and then they kind of imposed semi-starvation. I can't remember the calorie numbers, but I don't think that that's important. But what they found as a consequence to that starvation period is that when food was available again, people started binging because that is your body's like natural response of like there has been food scarcity therefore I will binge we talk about that with dieting quite a lot in terms of people restrict their food intake and then your body's like response is like well I need to eat it calls out for nourishment yeah. and it's often an uncontrollable urge I imagine that's so interesting yeah so essentially what the the research says and there's there's more to be done for sure on this topic but people who live with food insecurity are at higher risk of disordered eating behaviors and it's something that often gets overlooked in the research so a big thank you to Vivian for writing that review paper we see people with more severe food insecurity are more likely to engage in those compensatory behaviors as well so as well as the binging but also the um, the vomiting or the laxatives or, or whatever so it's so interesting because again this seems to go against the stereotypes that we are often taught about eating disorders in terms of like uh, obviously we were said it's not all low-income houses that have food insecurity but it's interesting to note that that again goes directly against 
the stereotypes that we have discussed on previous episodes. Yeah, and then it but also makes complete sense when you think about it because of how our bodies respond when there's not much food. Completely. And also, if you think, if you also just think about it in terms of when there isn't much food, what happens? It's not just a physical response, a biological response. It's also, there's definitely that, but then there's also the cognitive emotional response where you're, and anyone who's ever dieted will know this, like when you're dieting, you are thinking about food all the time. Yeah, it's all you think um, about. So it's like increased preoccupation with food. It's increased anxiety. You're And you're just generally more likely to binge. So... Gosh, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for that delicious noodle, Nadia. I'm I'm stuffed. (laughs) I just laugh every time about this noodle thing because I've told you this before, but my family nickname is Noodle. Knowledge Noodles, Noodles Nadia, Nadia Noodles. It's all all happening. (laughs) So before we sign off, as promised, we want to signpost to some of our favourite fat activists and scholars who we learn so much from. It's not an exhaustive list by any stretch but a really good starting point we think so first of all we have Aubrey Gordon aka your fat friend who often writes anonymously on topics related to health weight stigma and fatness then there's Monica Creety whose work often focuses on medical weight stigma who I actually met at Harvard Striped so through our previous week's guest Professor Bryn Austin then there's Mikey Mercedes, a PhD student at Brown, whose work I came across via Monica. So a lot of interconnection there. Then there's Sophie Hagen, Danish comedian, writer and podcaster. And also, I can't forget to mention, you can go back into the Body Protest archives and listen to our episode with Philippa Deirdrix and also Vagitova more recently. Of course, we can't forget the people that we have spoken to on this very podcast. Okay, honey, I think we're done. I love you. Oh, I love you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Body Protest. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode and it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe, rate and review. You can follow Honey on Instagram at HoneyKinney. And you can follow Nadia at Nadia.Craddock. This podcast is produced and edited by the glorious Daisy Grant. And it's brought to you by the Pink Protest Podcast Network.